Hey guys, this is Kevin Cam with Boston Strongcast. Today I'm joined by an elite lifter, local lifter from New Hampshire, Nicholas Gadis. Say hi, Nick. Hey, everybody. Uh, we'll get things started, Nick. Give us a little background on yourself, uh, competition-wise, what you do for work, all the good stuff. Sure. Uh, well, I guess I'll start off with my, my work. Um, I am a nutritionist and a powerlifting coach full-time. Uh, I have my own business in New Hampshire, uh, a uh, facility that my team trains at, and I do group-based training and one-on-one -on -one training and uh, the like of all that um, performance nutrition programs. I did um, strength and conditioning in the collegiate uh, world for a little while, about four and a half, five years. Um, and so I've been in strength sports for a pretty long time. Um, been powerlifting since 2006. And uh, yeah, that's about it. What made you want to get into this field, this, the strength and conditioning field? Combination of things. Uh, I started off pre-med at the University of New Hampshire, and um, after a few too many classes that I didn't care, out, uh, care about at all, um, I switched to nutrition. That was a passion of mine. I had just kind of gotten to recreational bodybuilding and powerlifting, and you know, nutrition's a huge huge part of uh, your athletic performance. So uh, my school offered that degree and I made the switch immediately, uh, minored in exercise physiology. And I just uh, took a really academic approach to learning about the human body and uh, trying to put everything together to try and help myself and, um, and, and help others. And at that time I found out that strength coaching full time was a was a thing apparently they actually pay people to do that and uh i went on to get my master's degree at ball state university where i also was an assistant strength conditioning coach and that was my first professional job uh in the industry so awesome. yeah. what was your uh, grad degree in sports performance sports it was performance. like a, a clinical application of uh physiology Awesome. Uh, what did you think of the whole college setting, being a strength and conditioning coach at the college level? It was really fun uh, when I was younger, and uh, I, I, I really did enjoy it. Um, college kids are a ton of fun to work with. They have so much energy and just so um, much potential that you, know, you could never get bored. Uh, it was definitely a tough profession to be in though. And uh, I have a lot of respect for, for all the coaches out there who are still doing it guys and, uh, and women that I worked with. Um, I, I had a huge priority into starting a family and things like that. And uh, I ended up starting my own business after that to better accommodate that. Um, I think, you know, you, you, you hit on a, on a big point. Like there are many different paths that you can take in this field and that college level, like I interned at Harvard and I saw what those guys did. Um, maybe if you could explain some of the difficulties of working at the strength and conditioning level at a college, um, like the hours and all the stuff that it entails. Um, I think that'd be great. For yeah, sure. People listening I might want to get into it. Yeah. I mean, uh, 
everything, I kind of have a personal ethos that, you know, everything that's good in my life has come through hard work. So I'm not afraid to work hard or work long hours or anything like that. Um, but, um, you know, you have to be, you have, there's all these trade-offs, you know, and when I first got into collegiate strength and conditioning, um, I loved it. And I, I was dating around at the time, but I wasn't really too serious. Uh, so things were, uh, just pretty much about me and getting experience. And, uh, from an academic standpoint, you know, there are so many great strength coaches out there at all of these colleges doing awesome things and everybody's got a different opinion and, you know, you could go, to a different school every year from now until uh, the rest of your life and you get a different opinion every day. Um, so from a learning perspective, it was very fulfilling. Um, and like I said before, you know, working with the athletes was awesome too. But uh, working, work-life balance was really tough. Uh, standard hours you know, we're, you know, at least 6am to 6pm. And there's a lull in the middle of the day, but you're usually doing conferences with coaches or programming or um, lots of different things, you know, in the college bureaucracy to keep you busy. Um, and, you know, there were times where my own personal uh, uh, training, uh, my, my workouts uh, didn't exist because um, because of just work. And so as a professional, a professional coach, a performance coach, you know, I consult with people and, um, everybody's got a story and everybody, um, has difficulties in their life. And they think that, Oh, well, you know, you, you own your own business. So it's really easy for you. And, you know, you, you used to work in the, you work in the gym all the time. So you obviously must work out. And that's not true. You know, there are times when, uh, when, when you don't really get to fit everything in. So as far as scheduling difficulties, yeah, being a college coach was tough to also maintain a high, a high level, um, of competition, you know, personally, and, you know, your first loyalty is to your school. So, uh, that, that, that was just kind of, uh, assumed that if, uh, you need to be available all day long and you just, and you need to get home at such and such a time to be with the kids afterwards. Well, you know, then you weren't training. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think though, with those jobs, like, you know, if you're trying to get into this field and you're right out of college, I think there's like a rite of passage to have to do a job like that so that you can appreciate everything that you get yeah. uh, later on. And you do, you learn a lot and you learn about developing buy-in um, on top of like some of the, the coaching strategies that those coaches work, uh, that those coaches use. And, you know, that buy-in goes a long way. Like having somebody believe in you as a coach, um, no matter where you end up taking it later on. And I think that was the biggest takeaway I got from uh, the college level was the buy-in piece. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. You know, work, working with trying to sell people on your, program or your point of view you know it's just like mm, any kind of polemic or, or you know po politics or anything you know when you're when you have a, a vision that you want to execute and it involves other people you know you have to get people on board and uh that that job was great for uh trying to establish a plan and uh and get a whole team you know behind you um I mean, it was, it's all for them anyways, but yeah, college kids do take a bit of convincing. <laughs> but like you said, they are a very fun population. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so why powerlifting, Nick? So in 2006, you were like looking at I a did barbell. did a bench press competition. That's it. I, um, <laughs> I, I got actually, you know, I first got into weightlifting um, when I was in high school. I was a varsity soccer player. And uh, I, I have no issue with admitting that I was not the best player by any means. I probably wasn't even – nah, I mean, uh, I, I won't be too modest. I was probably one of, the, one of the better guys on the team, but definitely not the best. Oh. Um, hardest worker, for sure. And that was that, – that's just something that stuck with me my whole life. And, you know, I couldn't, you know, dribble from one end of the field to the other and, and just solo win the game for my team. So I had to figure out, you know, what my contribution could be. And um, – I was always one of the bigger players on the team, not, not the biggest, but, um, you know, kind of, kind of in the middle, jack of all trades. And I realized uh, I met a hockey player at my high school and he was ripping away on the weights during gym class one day. And I just, first of all, I just, I, he, he did two twenty five two plates, you know, for, I don't know, maybe like four reps. And I just, I must have been 15 and I think he was 18 and I just thought that was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. And, uh, I, I just decided that I wanted to do that. And then through weight training, I realized that I was getting stronger and I was, you know, getting more athletic and that was helping me be a better soccer player. And, uh, um, that's just how it started. But, you know, I did not play collegiate ball. Um, I didn't really have any interest whatsoever. I just weightlifting kind of took over as my one uh, hobby. And uh, I eventually met some guys at a, at a uh, Globo gym type place who did powerlifting and, you know, they noticed that I was, you know, stronger than the average, you know, uh, meathead, I guess, and convinced me to do a bench press competition. Um, not too far from my hometown. And, uh, I don't know, just kind of, I, I, it was kind of like uh, magnetic. I just knew it was like, yep, yeah, this is for me. I, uh, you know, I love working out and I do it every day. And this competition is just a display of <laughs> almost, you know, who's the best at doing what I like to do. And, uh, that, that's how that started. I, so I did a couple of bench press competitions in maybe Oh, six, Oh seven. I did my first, full meat in 2009 with uh, 100% raw um, when they were still doing a lot of meats in New Hampshire. Um, but right about that time I got into, I got my first strength coaching job. I actually had a really debilitating back injury uh, at that time as well, which was the perfect storm that basically, you know, kept me out of training seriously for about three years. And, um, just life brought me back to New Hampshire in 2012. And then I did my first powerlifting meet um, with the USAPL uh, in 2013. And I've been with USAPL ever since. That's, that's pretty cool. There's a couple of things I actually want to touch upon there. Number one, what did you bench at, the, at your first meet? At my first powerlifting meet, I benched 420 uh, thereabouts. I mean, it was an APF meet. I don't even know if the results are stored anywhere. But I benched 420-ish at about 206 pounds body weight. <laughs> that was your first ever competition bench press. Yeah, yeah. I think I had done 30. my first barbell squat like a year before. So I was a little bit behind the curve on that. <laughs> 
That's fucking awesome. Just walking in somewhere and hitting 420 on a bench. It was um, fun. So you had to take three years off because you were injured. Yeah. Explain the process of getting back into the sport and then finally getting back on that platform for the first time. And maybe like, you know, what your training was like and even like your emotions trying to deal with your fears and stuff. Well, I, when I first started, the guys who picked me up when I was like 18, 19 years old were, you know, back, you know, I don't know who, you know, what the demographic of the people, you know, who are listening to this podcast are, but when I got into powerlifting, everything was with equipment. You know, everything was at least single ply, uh, probably double or or, or triple ply. And um, the guys thought I was just the weirdest, you know, person because I was like, eh, I'm not really too into that. I'd rather just do it without the shirt. And they're like, why? You could, you know, you're benching, you know, 400 now. You could You could bench like 500. And it's like, well, but I mean – just my personal opinions, like you, you can do that. I, I don't, I don't really want to, I'd rather just do it by myself, you know? And, um, I, but they were still, uh, the point is that they trained, uh, with like a West side mentality. And so it was all multiply. It was all, uh, or at least geared. It was all West side barbell. Uh, almost every power lifter I knew was on drugs. And so that was another thing, you know, that was different for me because, you know, again, I don't, I don't judge, you know, lifestyle choices, but I've never used um, lifetime drug free. And um, those guys are actually great on that front. They didn't pressure me at all. And they they actually encouraged me not to to do anything. But um, the point remains that the style of training that I was doing when I was 18, 19, 20 years old was like max out twice a week or, you know, once a week on bench and once a week on squats or deadlifts and, you know, do that every single week. And, you know, lots of hypertrophy training, um, you know, banded work, um, you know, basically if you Googled Westside barbell and like, you know, you got yourself a basic program, that's what I did for a long time. When I did my first powerlifting program, um, that was right after my first meet and I switched from, you know, kind of a, um, West side, the way that I had done it was kind of a low volume way of training. Most of my career, I've been like a low volume lifter. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, Monday I would come in and I'd, I'd work all the way up to, you know, uh, a one rep max most weeks actually. And then I'd come back down and I do some assistance work in an eight to 10 rep range. But I mean, by the end of the workout on my actual competition lift, I may have only done 15 reps. Um, and then I, and then I'd move on and I would do other stuff. And that was the same for squat and it was the same for deadlift. And after I did my first meet, I totaled, uh, 1540. Did I total 1540? It was 540 squat, 420 bench, 600 deadlift at my first full meet. And then I was like, all right, I'm a power lifter now. So I, I, I Googled a powerlifting program because I, I was in the middle of my schooling. I didn't ha- that was before my first strength coach job. I really didn't have anybody to talk to about it. I was the ringleader of my little crew at University of New Hampshire, and I didn't really have anybody to talk to. So I went to – I did like a five-by-five. Five. There was the strong lifts, five-by-five, five, you know, coolest Excel spreadsheet. Never saw one of those before. Yeah, I've, and, I've seen uh, these programs. Yeah, and they're not bad, but you know, if I you, my first week, I tore my quadratus lumborum in my back, uh, 
severely because on deadlifts, I, I just, I, I trained like a lunatic and I, I went from a style of training where I maybe did 15 reps of a given lift in a workout, which is pathetically low. And my very first week, I think my five by five said to do sets of like 465 for five sets of five. And by the third set, I was so toasted and roasted and just done. But I had to finish the program because that was my mentality, right? Oh, I got to get every rep. The hard know, worker. Yeah. yeah, I'm a failure. If I, I, if I don't do it, I'm not going to get the results, right? And then I made it finally to my last set. And then my first rep of my last set, I just, I just totally, like my back totally let go. And um, that, that sent me on a three-year spiral of, you know, kind of getting better. I didn't have health insurance at the time. You know, my parents were separated and I was in school. I didn't have a job at the time. I was living off of student loans. And um, so I didn't go to the doctor, obviously. Uh, three years later, I finally did go to the doctor. And um, there was just so much scar tissue in my back that there's nothing that they could do about it. And um, I don't know. It was just kind of a perfect storm because I had seen every, I'd seen chiropractors, PTs, doctors, you know, over like towards the end of that, I actually did get health insurance and, you know, they picked up a lot of that, which was, which was, you know, helpful, uh, but nothing helped. And um, I just really had to take my training into my own hands. And I had gathered a lot more knowledge from, you know, I interned at Boston College with Rosa and Nika um, And they had so much material from the old um, Russian, um, uh, just the old Soviet Union, you know, they, all of these like strength, like strength science originated in you know, in Russia. And they, uh, to be honest, you know, I, I probably shouldn't say this, you know, publicly, but you know, there are a lot of great organizations putting out research and stuff, but uh, to be honest, there's not really a whole lot that has improved on what the Russians, you know, identified 35, 40 years ago. Absolutely. And, um, and, and I, I have hundreds of pages of manuals and, you know, things that have been translated from Russian, you know, in limited quantities, uh, thanks to those guys. And um, I, I met a lot of other lifters from different walks of life. Um, and I finally kind of came up with a program that worked for me insofar as I stopped freaking hurting myself. Um, and, uh, yeah, for, you know, I have to knock on wood, you know, because, you know, you, you're bound to have issues when you compete at a high level. And, you know, this past year, um, things have gotten progressively harder for me. But, um, you know, I'm also in my 30s now. And, I mean, every decade you get to, I have people say, ah, just wait. And you, you're 20, wait, wait until you're 30. Oh, you just turned 30, wait until you're 40, you know. And it does kind of <laughs> – it kind of get it does get worse. But, <laughs> yeah. Just you do know, what you can. But, you know, if you're smart about it, this is a sport that you can take forever. Like, you can yeah. literally do this. You know, maybe not competing at the level you're competing at now. Well, but there are a lot of great role models who are competing, you know, well into their 40s and 50s. And, you know, I um, – the guy – actually, you know, one of my big aspirations is breaking the American bench press record. And the guy that I'm chasing is still competing. And he's – I think he's almost 50 years old. 
Yeah, so, Dave Ricks is what, 58, 59? Yeah, years. He, he's up there. Tony Harris, Dennis Sieri. I mean, there's a lot of very, uh, very uh, strong and capable Masters lifters. And so, uh, but as a young person, you know, you kind of just run into everything head on and you want all the results right now. And maybe that leads to some decisions, uh, um, some, some wrong decisions being made. But, um, that's one of the things that I've learned the most over the past few years is just trying to pace it out and, and look at the big picture instead of um, just your next meet. I think like that right there is one of the biggest takeaways I try to explain to everybody coming in the gym. Like it's hard when you're inundated with social media and PRs everywhere. And yeah. you know, there are some really strong 20 somethings out there putting up huge numbers and stuff. And it's like, listen, like if you just have slow, steady progress continually over time, like eventually you're going to be exactly where you want to be. Like there's no rush. You can do this forever. And like, yep. you know, a lot of, you know, I have a lot of females. So a lot of the females that are just dominating their weight class are over 40. So yep. like, you know, For they're sure. the ones who put in their time, they did it smart and they kept doing it. And because they've kind of been able to sustain it for a prolonged period of time, I don't care how genetically gifted you are. It's very hard to beat somebody who's been doing it for 20 years at a high level, no matter what your genetic capabilities are. Um, you know, it's one sport where hard work kind of, no matter what will pay off in the end. Um, yeah, agreed. One of my, one of my favorite things. Um, I like how you mentioned too about the, the Russian documents. A funny story was I was having beers with Fred Hatfield three years ago, four years ago now. And he was actually saying that Verkashansky kept all of his good stuff out of the books that you tend to see um you know your uh like the super trainings and the scientific principles of strength yep. training like sure, a lot sure. of the good stuff was kept out and it's actually that conversation there was why when i first got into this sport i seeked out Borishiko as my coach yep um you know to try to kind of learn because you're right nobody has done what they've done since that time in the last 30 40 years and i think it's really yeah. interesting and, uh, you know, actually, we're kind of uh, brothers in that regard. I, I worked with Boris for a few months, and he helped me out quite a bit with um, my deadlift and my squat. Um, I've been a fan of his style of training, you know, since, I mean, I have uh, board messages from forums saved from 2008 and 2009, you know, people discussing his programs and his theories. And it was so counter to the West side mentality of just high frequency, high intensity, um, that it was interesting at that time. I just didn't, I couldn't wrap my brain around the volume and the super compensation aspect of training. I just was the very, you know, typical, like, well, I got to do it in the gym. So I know I can do it at the meet. Right. You know, and, um, you know, after working with, um, boy, you know, Mr. Shaco, uh, that, that was a huge revelation, you know, for me in managing loads and volumes, um, over time to help lifters, uh, train safely, you know, three years of being injured, you know, that was one of the things that pushed me over the edge where I was like, okay. I can't, I can't do this max out every Monday kind of thing, you know, cause I, uh, you know, I, I separated my shoulder doing pin presses one day, Oof. you know, I think I like did a, a, a six inch lockout with like 550 pounds when I was only a 450 pound bench presser. 
and uh, I blew my shoulder apart. <laughs> so, like, you know, my lifters, you know, they haven't even really heard all of these stories. So, you know, you, over time, you know, you make mistakes and, you know, life is a very potent teacher. And I would love if my lifters didn't have to endure the damage to their body that I did. <laughs> <laughs> the we have similarities too because i actually like when i get into powerlifting i was just surrounded by a bunch of multiply west side guys that were doing all kinds of like um crazy like safety squat bar bands chains boxes yeah. um and so the first program that i i was doing the whole mma thing and a lot of my friends like that i was doing it with got married had kids moved so that kind of fell apart but i, I love to compete like there's just something in me that that's what i want to do so I was lucky enough where I was 32 at the time. So like if I had ever started in my freaking twenties, I would have been an asshole the entire time. Um, but like my first program, I was using like a safety squat bar a lot and I ended up um, being able to squat more with the safety squat bar than I could with a straight bar at one point. Yep. And you know, I was like, man, this doesn't make sense. And then Chico actually came for a seminar and it's like, wow, this is so different from everything I've heard. But like his resume speaks for himself. I'm just going to like, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a try. Like, um, what are some of the things that you've taken from his program that you still use today in your training? Well, I go a lot back. And so first of all, you know, full disclosure, I work with Hanny Jezzarilli, um, of TSA and I've been working with him since, you know, I pretty much went from Boris to Hanny and, um, I've had a lot of success with Hanny and Hanny, you know, I think one of the reasons why our relationship works so well is because, um, he, he lets you be you, you know, and, um, he gets that I come from a certain pedigree and, um, both as a lifter and as a coach. And, you know, he, you know, he never from day one, like belittled me or argued with me or anything. And, you know, he would just say, okay, you know, this is, I'd like to do this. And, um, you know, what do you think? And I, you know, I just put my faith into him and, and we just went away with it. But, you know, each prep that we did, you know, we'd have more conversations about it. And, um, I do the same thing with my lifters as well. You know, if I, if I pick up a new athlete and I don't know them from anything, I actually give, I start them off with a very Shaco like program because, I don't know what their capabilities are, what their mental state of training is, you know, what their consistency is, their temperament. And, you know, I just, I don't want them making any decisions. Um, and working with Shaco was great because everything was like planned out. You know, I didn't, I could just come to the gym and I could just do it. And it, I didn't have to think um, about what I was going to do that day at all. Like, because the targets were right there. Um, and you know, I'll come back around to, to Shaco in a second, you know, because the, the key differences between Shaco and like what I've been doing with Hanny, um, Hanny is much more of a linear progressive guy. And, um, for a, a lot of people talk crap about, you know, linear periodization these days. Um, or I don't know. I, I, I don't even know what's popular anymore. Is undulating is still a thing, you know, <laughs> it because, is. you know, when I, when I was a strength coach, everybody was, Oh, everything's got to be undulating daily undulating. You know, you, you, if you're doing linear periodization, you're, you know, you're screwed up and you shouldn't have a job. Um, but Dude. Here's my thing with that stuff. Everything is linear. Everything is conjugate and everything is undulating. Like by the definitions of those terms, like you're progressing stuff in a linear fashion. It just might not be week to week, but 
yep. you know, every two weeks. You're changing reps on a daily basis. You're changing exercises on a da- daily basis. If you're using variations, there's your conjugate component. So, like, sometimes, but not always, not always. And, you know, and, and so like, I'm just going to harp on that because, you know, with what I've been doing with, with Hanny, it's been much more linear. You know, we pick rep ranges for certain times and we work our way into the meet and, you know, they, they're um, kind of, um, you know, if you talk about like Mike Teixeira and RTS and, and, you know, the, the whole, the development of the RPE type training, um, we do a lot of that as well. And, you know, auto regulation is a funny thing, you know, it lets you overperform when you're able to, but, um, it's supposed to let you protect yourself when you're not able, but I don't know anybody who, um, that's, that's not true. I have like one, one of my athletes is like, I don't think he's ever shot an RPE, but at some point or another we do. And you know, how badly you slide on that can, can, can really mess with an entire training block. And so, um, so those are the two major differences, you know, working with somebody who's, who's done something very linearly um, versus, you know, working with Boris where, you know, we're doing doubles and triples, you know, most of the time with quads and, you know, fives sometimes and singles sometimes. But um, the fact is, is you always, you are always between, you know, 75 to 90%, 75 to 90%, you know, um, which I liked. I did enjoy that, you know, when I was doing it because I never really got too far away from my maxes. Whereas under, you know, a traditional linear program, you know, you may spend, you know, if it's a 16 week prep, you may spend the first four weeks, you know, in the 65 to 70% range. And as an athlete, I hate that. I hate it. I think everybody does, you know, you just like, I just did the Arnold and you know, what did I do when I came back? I did 10 I did tens, you know, at 65% and I wanted to puke the whole time. And then, <laughs> You know, and it's just like, I don't know. You just do it because you have to, but a part of you dies every time. <laughs> um, so you have a block, you know, say that four weeks ago between 65 and 75. And so each week you're uh, doing the same exercise, but increasing the intensity a little bit. Yeah. So that's, so Hanny and I's program, you know, we, Lately, we've been changing things up more frequently, but um, in general, you know, we may pick a few exercises that target um, the areas of interest, so to speak, or deficiency. Um, You know, like, so I'll just give you an example instead of talking in um, theories. Yeah, yeah. At the Arnold, um, I I actually, I, I, I had a horrible meet by my standards. Um, and I went into that meet with the goal in mind, this entire prep leading up to it was that I wanted to go after one of the American bench press records. I wanted to go after the, uh, full meet bench press record in the 105 kilo weight class, which would have been five, uh, it would have been, uh, 232 and a half kilograms, about 513 pounds. And the whole prep um, that's what the goal was. And, um, you know, in the interest of time, you know, I won't really go into that prep too much, but this is a very, very difficult prep. And just by a stroke of luck on that day, Hanny, um, you know, saw my second attempt and which we played it safe because my first attempt was garbage. 
um, we played it safe on my second and we just had a little chat out back and he was like, well, that one was good. What do you want to do? And, um, the goal was to hit 513, but jumping from 491 to 513 is like massive jump, but it was the Arnold and I was amped up and I was like, you know what, you know, there's nothing really to play for today. Um, I wasn't going to win. Bryce, Bryce was there. Bryce is the number one reigning 105. And um, the funny thing is, is he was so close to beating that day because he didn't have a great day either. Um, but I missed the lift. All right. The point of the story is I missed the lift and I missed it about halfway up. And um, my lockout has been an issue um, over the past year. So for this training block, we picked some exercises that are specifically addressed at training the lockout. And so we will follow those through all the way every week, you know, until the end of the prep. So, you know, that, that was the long, long winded story, but to give you an idea that, you know, what we analyze the lift, we look at it and we say, all right, you know, what, what's the major issue here. And then we work those into the training program. Um, Shaco would do something similar, but his might be, I mean, he may have a pool of like 12 different exercises that I may do over the course of, you know, 20 workouts. Right. And there's no necessarily like, well, every Monday I'm going to do this. Um, sometimes it would work out that way. Sometimes it wouldn't. And um, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But, um, you know, uh, I've actually, with the variations, I've actually found like with my lifters, I pick one for each lift working on targeting one area and we leave that exercise in and just progress it through in a linear fashion for four to six weeks yeah. um, or longer if necessary. Like if it, you know, the improvements are being made, we'll keep it in there longer if I feel necessary. But I do, I do kind of get what you guys are, you guys are uh, doing there. So how long will that exercise be left in? Uh, the program. So say you're doing like some type of board press or whatever, working on sure. how long would that be in there? Um, some of them may stay the entire prep. Um, you know, so for example, my next meet is likely to be in June. Um, I, I, my wife is uh, pregnant actually with our second child. Congratulations. And he's going to be, thank you. He's going to be due in June. So I'm kind of stuck in this weird place where I'm like, all right, I really want to get in a meet before he's born. Um, but the only local meet to me is like the week that she's supposed to go in labor. So I'm still kind of like on the fence of whether or not I'm going to be able to do that. But that meet is the, is the logical one after the Arnold because it's 11, it was about 12 weeks away. And so, you know, how long does an exercise stay in a program? Well, something that's a super maximal lift, like a board press or a slingshot press or something like that you know, you, I wouldn't personally want to leave in a program for much more than six to eight weeks anyways. So, um, that's a perfect duration. You know, you got your four weeks of misery, you know, with the high reps, <laughs> then you get into your, you know, your, your direct work. Um, that would take me from four weeks all the way to about 10 weeks. And then, you know, we'd probably remove a few of those exercises to help with the taper into the competition. All right. That, that, it makes a lot of sense, like the logical component of it. Um, and I, I, do, I do like the setup of that a lot more. Um, what are some of your biggest drawbacks that you had while working with uh, Boris? Um, or maybe criticisms of the program that you feel. Like I, you know, I'm not going to lie. You know, to be honest, Hanny, Hanny has me because of the relationship that we have. If I, if, if I ever had to depart from working with him, 
um, I would go right back to um, Shaco style training. I, I enjoy it. It keeps me in check. And um, I've done a lot of between working with him and, you know, uh, um, being on the forums and, you know, all of the research that I had done into, you know, Soviet style training um, over the years as a strength coach. Um, if I, if, you know, if when I get to the point where I desire to be in control of my training again, I, I actually, I will go right back to it. And I, I don't have a lot of criticisms for Shaco's method of training. I think it's great. Um, the only one I would say is that sometimes you go a little bit too long with, uh, without, you know, feeling something, uh, that's close to your one rep max. Some, some lifters can get a little bit, um, nervous. Yeah. Wait, for, me, for, for me, that's for personally, for me, that's not the problem. It's not a problem. I mean, I did, a, I did three months with Shaco and I didn't touch more than like four twenty-five the entire time. And within four weeks of moving on from Shaco, I benched 500 for the first time. I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not the kind of lifter that, you know, I'm not the lifter that I used to be. I'm trying to demonstrate, you know, personal growth here. You know, when I was a young lifter, I needed to feel that weight all the time. Um, now as an older lifter, um, more seasoned lifter with self-preservation in mind, um, I don't mind hitting 90 plus percent once every four to eight weeks, you know? Yeah, I've kind of run into those problems with like me personally. I, I wasn't scared. Like when I'm around people, like I'm so competitive that when I'm around people lifting so much more weight, it's like. I know I'm a better athlete than this person. I'm lifting a hundred pounds less. This is, this is going to be easy. There's no reason why I shouldn't be able to do that stuff. So like, I never got scared of the weights. Um, but I ran into when I was coaching people doing that, where, you know, we wouldn't compete for say three, four months in between competitions. And all of a sudden, you know, the program calls for 90% and they're like freaking out about it. Yeah. Um, so I've actually started putting in a little more, uh, like singles at 90%, just a little Well, it's, it's funny that you just, you kind of remind me about something too. Like um, powerlifting is something that a lot of people, you know, when they start off and they're interested, you know, and maybe they dip their toe in and they do their first meet, um, they may not do another meet for, I don't know, a year, maybe right. more. And um, one of the things that I really agreed with Shaco with is that an athlete, you know, needs to do multiple competitions a year. And so four to six is what he recommends. Exactly. And so, you know, I think that locally we have some supply and demand issues with um, the ability for our governing organizations to provide enough meets uh, right now, which is actually a great thing because, you know, people who uh, want to evangelize the sport, you know, have opportunities to host events, but mm -hmm. The thing is, is that, you know, if you look at, so my, my team is based in Southern New Hampshire, you know, we're, we're about a 40 minute drive from Boston. So whenever I come down to visit you guys at, at that, uh, that hardcore gym, you know, TPS, <laughs> uh, it takes me like 45, 50 minutes to get there with the traffic and stuff. Now, if I look at the calendar of USAPL meets this year, um, we, there was one in Concord, which was a hour drive north of me in January. There was nothing uh, local in February. 
uh, March. There was uh, I was at the Arnold, but there was uh, there was only the high school state championships, oh, right. which was uh, two weeks ago. Um, then the next meet out is at the end of April, which is the New Hampshire state championships. And then the next meet out after that is almost six weeks later in Rhode Island. So if you're a type of person who has a restrictive work schedule or family obligations or stuff like that, it's really hard to compete as often as you should. I mean, and it, it does, it gets expensive too. you know, registration costs are, you know, like 80 bucks a pop, but you know, I, I put a little bit of money aside for just competing, you know, right. and uh, the, at the end of the day, I try to get all of my athletes to do at least three uh, or more competitions a year. And so in order to help solve that problem, we're hosting a meet at my facility, you know, because there are no local meets in the month of July. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to host one. Um just to help with that, uh, to that rhythm, you know, so they don't go so long, uh, because also gym PRs mean nothing, right? You know, that's, that's like, I'm sure you tell your lifters that too. People get so excited for the Instagram posts and look at what I did and this and that. And, and the thing is, is if you didn't do it on the platform in the, er, in the world of powerlifting, if you're talking about the sport of powerlifting, what you did in the gym means absolutely nothing it means nothing except it it must mean something to you you know um so get out there get on the platform and do it on the platform i i mean with that i couldn't even i couldn't agree more and it's hard i think for a lot of people to fathom sometimes but like here's what you know there's different levels of lifters like some just want to do this casually and do local meets and then others compete at a high level and even the ones who are competing at a high level what i tell them all the time is i don't give a shit what your best lifts are i don't give a shit what your best lifts are at a meet that's 20 minutes away at a gym that you train at frequently around the people that you're comfortable with travel somewhere and increase your rankings like somebody like carrie who finished 14th at nationals last year in her weight class let's hit that top 10 and you know what if you have your worst meet of your entire career at nationals and you win that's your best fucking meet it's not about the it's about competing like yeah. just like any sport you know um, well as a, as a coach too you know i'm sure you dealt with this like everybody we lift because we we like the numbers aspect everybody who lifts and wants to get stronger is looking at that next number if you're if you're a lighter lifter and you haven't squatted you know 200 or 300 you know you're trying to get there if you're a, you're if you're a heavyweight you're looking for those big milestone numbers everybody everybody wants that and the thing that just that just gets me and my lifters are gonna they're gonna they're gonna give me a hard time you know once they hear this but um it it's about standards it really is about standards as a strength coach i would hear how many coaches come in and say oh you know uh i got this i got this kid you've never seen before you you've never seen an athlete like this kid you know 158 pounds squats 500 you know ass to grass you know runs a four four you know um runs a four four forty has a 40 inch vertical jump you name it can bench press 225 for 100 reps i mean I, I i in a row i mean i've heard it all and then that person shows up and they squat 300 pounds sky high they run a five four and they have a 30 inch vertical jump right. and it's like wh- where are you get- oh it was an approach jump uh it was uh oh oh i, I just said squat i didn't mean i didn't really mean ass to grass oh that 220 you know it's just like at the end of the day, that's, that's really why meets matter because in the world of powerlifting where all we're doing is moving a barbell, 
the equipment matters. The preparation matters, you know, two hour way in versus 24 hour way in knee wraps or no knee wraps suit or no suit drug tested or not drug tested. It matters. And if people are going to walk around claiming that they do this or some other, or, or they deserve praise because of some other reason, then they need to be held to some kind of standard. It's just the way it is. I mean, yeah. That's my that's the way that I feel about it. And I, I am a little bit of a dinosaur purist, but you know, it's the way it is. But I think that's how the sport grows over time is when there are standards that are met consistently, you know, maybe 10 years from now it's an Olympic sport. Um, you know, I think for the growth of the sport, having set standards like, you know, having all these different federations with different rules probably works against powerlifting a little bit. But like the reason why all of my lifters compete in the USAPL is because they hold lifters to higher standards. Um, you can compete on bigger platforms like, you know, the, uh, drug testing, like there's, there's a number of, of reasons. Plus, you know, all the colleges spotting and loading and getting paid and being able to keep their programs. That's important to me too, because those are probably future members of my powerlifting team. Um, yeah. you know, but I think, you know, and a lot of times you hear this from beginners, it's I'm not strong enough to compete. Right. And that's not the point. Can you squat to depth? Can you yep. touch your chest and lock out a bench? And can you pick up a barbell? Just do it. Like, I know. Have some fun, you know? I, I agree with you 100%, you know, and I, 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 I but you, you know as well as I do, you know, the, the, the pressure to perform, you know, is very high in our sport. Just like if somebody was going to do bodybuilding, they'd be, be damn sure that they have a six-pack before they get on stage. Right. Um, you know, I, I understand that there is a certain barrier to entry into powerlifting. You know, you want to, you want to feel like you belong there. Um, but there's a learning curve to the sport as well. And um, the angle that I kind of put at it is if you're curious about um, a recreational activity, such as powerlifting, um, you have to, you have to give it a go. And the only way you learn whether you like it or not, or whether you have an aptitude for it or not, is if you actually show up and do it. Um, so even aside from the performance standpoint, uh, all good power lifters have gotten that they, they have developed a part of their preparation is actually being able to perform at the, at that meet, you know, there's the training aspect, there's the, you know, the mindset, there's the nutrition, there's the sleep, there's the social relationships, there's the work relationships. And then there's actually showing up on game day and doing it. And if you never compete, um, that will never get developed. So it's a skill, know, just like strength yeah, exactly. is a skill. Competing is a skill. Exactly. Um, yeah. And that's what I try to drive and tell my lifters too. Like, develop your abilities, learn the timing of the warmups, learn how to lift in front of a lot of people while judges are watching in an unfamiliar setting, like competing is a skill when things go wrong. You know, sometimes you're, you're getting your lifts that 12 to 15 minutes in between attempts. Sometimes things like Kerry had to buy new knee sleeves in between first and second attempts at Mm. nationals, like things happen and you have to deal with it and dealing with it at that level. I think, you know, it, it develops a stronger lifter, and like human being, I think in general, uh, for moving sure. forward. Um, yeah. So you said maybe June is next for you for competing. Yeah, I um, think uh, depending on family stuff. Yeah, the first weekend in June. I forget what the date is, but that Twin River, the one in Rhode Island. Uh, Lincoln, Lincoln, Rhode yeah. Island. Yep, I have a few yeah. people at that one. Yeah. Um, 
hopefully I'll be away the weekend of your meet. Otherwise, I probably would have had a group go up there to Nashua. Yeah, I think we're going to um, see you at uh, the New Hampshire State Championships. Is that oh, right? yeah. Yep, yep. We'll be there. We actually have a, a pretty large group competing. Um, awesome. That weekend. And hopefully it's everybody who should be competing at nationals this year, minus a few. So um, should Great. be a fun meet. All right, Nick, um, let people know where they can find you. Uh, so my, my powerlifting club is in Nashville, New Hampshire, 138 Lake Street, Nashville, New Hampshire. Um, I'm on Instagram, uh, Gadis Powerlifting. Yeah, that's my major social media outlet. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Uh, Nick, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, I think there's a lot of good stuff in here. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, make sure you follow me on Instagram. It's K-W-C-A-N-N, C -A -N -N, and our team, Precision Powerlifting Systems. Uh, follow us on Facebook, too. All right, stay strong, Boston.